0: You may receive. How many of you are encouraged this morning knowing that this is not where you belong? That's an encouraging thought. And I had a, the opportunity to hear the writer of that song give a testimony behind that song a few years back. And, uh, uh, and he was sharing how he was in a, in a connection group. And someone in their connection group uh, received the bad news that they were, they were not going to live much longer on this earth. And he wrote that song for this person in his connection group to remind that person that this isn't where we belong anyway. And so no matter what's going on in your life, no matter, even if it's news of impending death, that's okay. You know why? This isn't where we, we belong anyway, and we're on our way home. Amen? I don't know about you, but that's exciting to me to, to think through that. And so I appreciate the, the team uh, singing that song for us today. We've been working through uh, our journey with Joshua uh, for the last uh, 10 weeks or so. As we've been uh, working through this journey, we're realizing that it's not just a journey for Joshua, but it's a journey for, for Israel. It's a journey uh, of faith that begins to take place. Um, we, we saw basically how in the, the past, the previous generation did not have the faith to go into the promised land. Remember that? It's been 40 years in the wilderness, but finally in this generation of, of Joshua, they learned enough through the wilderness that last week we crossed the Jordan River and the people of God are in the promised land. That's an exciting thing, isn't it? And we see this journey of faith. Before there wasn't any faith, not enough faith then for the land. Now with this new generation, we see them, they're entering the promised land. It's an exciting thing. It brings us to a few questions that, as I'm studying this, came to my mind. One is, well, why didn't the journey end with crossing the Jordan? I mean, in the past, they didn't have faith. Now, did they have faith? They did, right? I mean, they, they were in the Promised Land. They took the measure of faith. They, they came into the Promised Land. They crossed the Jordan River. I mean, after all, didn't they express that faith by walking across the, the Jordan River? And and uh, wasn't, that, wasn't that enough. But I think we begin to understand as we look at this that faith has a, it's a kind of a complicated thing. And we have to be careful to make sure we understand faith. Faith is both a point and a process. Now, what do I mean by that? Uh, It's a point and a process. It can be the starting point. In fact, if we think of your life and your personal journey of faith, we're born in this world, we live this physical life, but then we come to a point, if we accept Jesus Christ as our Lord and Savior, we come to a point that we call salvation. The Bible says in Ephesians 2, verses 8 and 9, that there are two requirements for salvation. One is not ours, it's something that God does. And one is ours. The Bible says, for by? Grace. Are you saved? In other words, one of the requirements for salvation is grace. And guess what? That's already provided for us. Jesus Christ died on the cross. We didn't deserve that, right? He died on the cross to pay for our sins. Even though He lived a perfect life, He died on the cross to pay because we, did not, we do not live perfect lives. He died on the cross to pay for our sins. That's grace. But there's also this other requirement. The Bible says, For by grace are you saved through faith. Faith is our part, it's our response to the grace. And if if either of those were not intact, we would not have salvation. Fortunately for us, God always succeeds, so grace is never failing. But it is also important for us to respond in faith. If we do not respond with faith, then we do not begin this journey at all. It is the starting point. Faith is the point. It is the, the difference maker. And uh, the moment we place our faith in Jesus Christ for the salvation of sins, instead of in our own works or instead of in anything else, the moment that we do, uh, that's, that's called faith. We often see that uh, called saving faith. And once a person places their saving faith in, in Christ, this is what James call, calls it, uh, saving faith, once we put our saving faith in Jesus Christ, that changes our eternal destiny. And can that decision ever be revoked? It no. It cannot. Once we are a child of God, we are a child of God. That doesn't change. I, I have three children. All three of them are my children, right? They might do something that might hinder or put an obstacle in our relationship. Not my children, right? They're angels. <laughs> <laughs> nah, I'm just kidding, but uh, of course. But is there anything that either of them could do to stop being grapes? Not really. Anything that they could do to stop being my children? No. And that's the way it is. Once we put our, our uh, that saving faith, we believe in what Jesus Christ did on the cross to pay for our sins, that begins an, a new journey, and that changes our eternal destiny, and that will never change. So in that sense, faith is a point. It is a point in life, and that, that never changes. But what happens when a person gets saved? Do we go straight to heaven? Do we go straight to perfection? No, we begin this process that we call sanctification. Salvation is a one-time event. You don't have to do it multiple times in your life. It happens one time. Sanctification is that process then, of growing and becoming more and more like Christ. That's why we're called Christians, right? And it's because of that sanctification process. But is faith a part of that? It is. And we see this process of growing our faith that begins with salvation. So faith is both the point, but then there's this process. What a beautiful picture of this we see when we we look at the the life and the story of Israel in the book of Joshua. They've come to to that point of faith. They have shown that what what their ancestors and their previous generation had, they they have something uh, beyond what their, their previous generation had. They have faith, but it's just the starting point. God is now going to be in the process, throughout the rest of the book, of building their faith. And, uh, and, and what does God use to build our faith? When you think about it, we might not like the answer. But many times he uses obstacles. He puts things in our path, things that are not easy. Why? Because it is intended to grow our faith. And I, bring, I say all this as an introduction to what we're getting into today because we're going to be looking at, a, really, an introduction to the obstacles that we're going to find all through the rest of the conquest phase as we study the book of Joshua together. As they're, they're going from, from obstacle to obstacle, God is building their faith. And we're going to see that happen. Uh, but how we look at our obstacles is going to make all the difference. This is a, a, a picture of a road. So I don't, I don't know where the picture was taken, but somewhere near where there's a volcano or whatever. But there's lava crossing the road. And I know you probably can't read those letters, so I'll read them for you. But it says underneath, it says, Some things cannot be overcome with determination and a positive attitude. Right? You've, you've seen motivational posters. They're in a lot of offices. These are demotivational posters. And, uh, and so the idea is, you can look at the obstacles. And sometimes you look at the obstacles and what do you say? Well, you can have a positive attitude and determination, but that's not going to get you through this obstacle. How many of you have ever seen or had obstacles in your life that made you feel that way? Of course, we all have. We've had obstacles that have made us feel that way. Here's another one I found online. I don't know if you can see it very well, but it looks like there's two little girls in uh, like a GameStop or something, and, and they have these little free games, but they're too small to reach the game console. And so you see one girl holding up the other girl to get up there, and the caption, uh, the caption says... Don't handicap your children by making their lives easy. Don't handicap your children by making their lives easy. There's a point behind that, isn't there? That sometimes the obstacles in life actually force us to be creative, force us to think outside the box, force us to grow. And we can become better people for it. Uh, a few weeks ago I was invited to the, the leadership summit Uh, not too far from here, the Global Leadership Summit, and uh, uh, Bill Hybels was giving his testimony, and someone asked him, how did you become so resourceful? And his answer was, I had a, a dad who dedicated his entire life to putting obstacles in my path to force me to become resourceful. He said when he was at 12 years old, he mentioned he wanted to ski. So his dad bought him a ticket and said, you're going to Colorado to, to ski. Well, how do I get there, Dad? Figure it out. <laughs> you know? Now, by the way, I'm not suggesting this by way of uh, parenting technique. Right? Don't do that. It's not wise. But you get the idea that what he was doing was putting obstacles in his path so that he would have to be stretched outside of his comfort zone. But... It shaped him to become the the person that he was. There's a sense in which we see God doing that too in in the lives of the people of Israel. He's putting obstacles in their lives. And obstacles can be scary, but God is also using those obstacles for a purpose. He's growing their faith. And that will become a picture of what we see in our own individual lives too. That we're also gonna see this throughout the rest of the conquest phase for Israel. So as we face obstacles... There are three things that we have to keep in mind. Three things that we have to keep in mind. And these three things will come right out of the text that we're going to study today. And so I want to look at those because this is just a little, it's actually a strange story that seems almost out of place. But we read these in in Joshua chapter 5. So if you could turn to Joshua chapter 5 with me. We're going to read verses 13 through 15 together. Joshua chapter 5 verses 13 through 15 And it came to pass, when Joshua was by Jericho, that he lifted his eyes and looked. And behold, a man stood opposite him, with his sword drawn in his hand. And Joshua went to him and said to him, Are you for us, or for our adversaries? And so he said, No, but as commander of the army of the Lord I have now come. And Joshua fell on his face to the earth and worshipped, and said to him, why does my Lord say that, uh, or, or what does my uh, Lord say to his servant? Then the commander of the Lord's army said to Joshua, Take your sandal off your foot, for the place where you stand is holy. And Joshua did so. What a strange story when you think about it. they just crossed the Jordan River, and you can imagine how the people in, in Jericho are feeling now, and, and they're in eyesight of all of these Jews who have crossed the Jordan River. They've seen, they've witnessed. You can see the river from Jericho. They've seen this happen. Their, their walls are shut up. And and they're waiting. Well, that night, I don't know exactly what Joshua was doing. I'm imagining it was probably a hard night to sleep, right? After crossing the Jordan. And Joshua's walking around. And then all of a sudden, out of nowhere, he looks up and there's a man standing there. That's scary enough. I mean, that, that scares me when... When you're expecting nobody and you look up and there someone is. Have you ever had that happen? And that's a scary thought. But now, he, he, here's a man with his sword drawn. Makes it a little bit even scarier, right? And, and, and he surprises him. And then he says, well, whose side are you on? Are you on my side or on our enemy's side? And his answer is no. Wait a minute, there, there, was, a, there was a question with just two options. Are you on my side or our enemy's side? And his answer No. But I'm on the side of the Lord. I'm the commander of the army of the Lord. That's a title, by the way, that Joshua was very familiar with. Do you remember what Joshua was before he succeeded Moses in being the leader of Israel? What was his position? He was the commander of the army of Moses. So now he's meeting someone who is the commander of the army of Yahweh, commander of the army of the Lord. Very interesting story. Three things that I think we helped or helps Joshua as he approaches the obstacles that the Lord is bringing in his way. First one is this. There's more going on behind the scenes than we realize. There's more going on behind the scenes than we realize. You know, too often when we face our obstacles, we see everything with our human eyes. And we look at the size of the obstacles, we look at the size of ourselves, we uh, we, we size it up with, with very human eyes, and we forget that there's a lot going on behind the scenes. Very few times in Scripture, but it does happen a few times, God opens up the eyes of a person and lets them see a little glimpse, just a little glimpse of what's really going on behind the scenes. I want to share the first time with you. If you keep your finger or something, a piece of paper or bulletin in Joshua uh, chapter 5, I want us to go back and take a look at Numbers uh, 22, uh, Numbers chapter 22, The story here in in the book of Numbers is is the story of Balak. Balak was an enemy of the people of Israel while they were wandering in the wilderness. And then there's Balaam is another character in the story. Balaam was one of the the prophets in Midian. And so Balak asked Balaam if he would curse the people of Israel for him so that he would be able to overcome them in battle. And Balaam saw this as an opportunity to make some money, and so he was on his way to do just that. I'll look at verse 22. Then God's anger was aroused because he went, and the angel of the Lord took his stand in the way as an adversary against him. And he was riding on his donkey, and his two servants were with him. Now the donkey saw the angel of the Lord standing in the way with his sword drawn in his hand, and the donkey turned aside out of the way and went into the field. So Balaam struck the donkey to turn her back onto the road. You see what's going on here? We have the angel of the Lord, some very familiar language here, with his sword drawn. Does that sound familiar to (laughs) you? Just like in Joshua chapter 5, his sword drawn. But does Balaam see the angel of the Lord? He doesn't. Do Balaam's servants, he had two servants with him, do they see the angel of the Lord? They don't. What do they, what, do, what do they see? They see everything that human eyes see. Nothing more, nothing less. But God allows the donkey to see a little bit more than that. It's in verse 24, then the angel, then the angel of the Lord stood in a narrow path between the vineyards, with a wall on this side and a wall on that side. And when the donkey saw the angel of the Lord, she pushed herself against the wall and crushed Balaam's foot against the wall. So he struck her again. He doesn't see. Verse 26, Then the angel of the Lord went further and stood in a narrow place where there was no way to turn, either to the right hand or to the left. And when the donkey saw the angel of the Lord, she laid down under Balaam. But Balaam's anger was aroused, and he struck the donkey with his staff. Then the Lord opened the mouth of the donkey, and she said to Balaam, What have I done to you that you have struck me with these three times? And Balaam said to the donkey, Because you have abused me. I wish there were a sword in my hand, for now I would kill you. So the donkey said to Balaam, Am I not your donkey on which you have ridden ever since I became yours to this day? Was I ever disposed to do this to you? And he said, No. Then the Lord opened Balaam's eyes. And he saw the angel of the Lord standing in the way with his drawn sword in his hand. And he bowed his head and fell flat on his face. And the angel of the Lord said to him, Why have you struck your donkey these three times? Behold, I have come out to stand against you. Because your way is perverse before me. The donkey saw me and turned aside from me these three times, and if she had not turned aside from me, surely I would also have killed you by now and let her live. God gave Balaam just a glimpse. Let him see the angel of the Lord with his sword drawn. And what did Balaam do? He fell flat on his face. You know, when we, when we see even obstacles in life, and they might be impressive obstacles, all it takes is a little glimpse of what's really going on, and we will be impressed. We should not be so impressed by the things that are going on in the world, but we should be more impressed by the things going on behind the scenes in the world, amen? And we see that there's a lot more going on behind the scenes than we realize, because what really makes all the difference is what's going on behind the scenes. That's really what's going on. In Joshua's case, he's not like Balaam. Balaam was, was running from God. Balaam was about to do something wrong, and God gave him this glimpse. Joshua's on the other side of that story. Joshua is on the Lord's side, right? Joshua is fighting for the Lord, and, and he's saying, I want you to have a little glimpse. And he introduces him to the commander of the army of the Lord. And this is going to come out very helpful to him, too, in the future. Because uh, we're going to see the Lord do some pretty amazing things. And when the Lord does that, what's the temptation? To point the fingers and point, give the credit to ourselves, right? But Joshua's going to know, wait a minute, it wasn't us fighting that battle. It wasn't us that's tearing down the walls of Jericho. It was the angels of the Lord tearing down the walls of Jericho. And so it's a very important lesson for him as we get through that. Ephesians 6 Uh, You don't have to turn there because I'll I'll just put the words up here on the screen. But Ephesians 6, 10-13 gives us a New Testament perspective of the exact same uh, concept. Paul writes, Finally, my brethren, be be strong in the Lord and in the power of His might. Be strong where? In the Lord. And in the power of whose might? His might. We don't have to be strong in the power of our own might. We have to be strong in the power of His might. It goes on in verse 11. Put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the wiles of the devil. For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against principalities, against powers, against the rulers of the darkness of this age, against spiritual hosts of uh, wickedness in the heavenly places. Say, wait a minute. Paul was fighting Rome. He was fighting Caesar. He was was fighting the the, the Roman system. Paul says, no, no. I recognize we're not wrestling against flesh and blood. But against principalities, powers, this is this is spiritual warfare going on, and oftentimes we forget. Oftentimes we forget that demons exist. We forget that angels exist, and we fight everything in our own power. And I know this because prayer is is not a major emphasis in churches in America anymore, and, and it's not. And you ask people to come over to your house to pray. And they're not going to come over. you yes, ask them over for food or fellowship, they might come over, right? Isn't that true? Because we don't realize what all is going on behind the scenes. And there are some books out there that, you know, they, they imagine some of those things. And some of those things have kind of raised some awareness of, of some of the things that are going on behind the scenes. Uh, but we forget that it's real. That there's a lot going on behind the scenes. He goes on to say... In verse 13, therefore, take up the whole armor of God that you may be able to withstand the evil day, and having done all, to stand. This whole point, you need to put on spiritual armor because this is spiritual warfare. What was the commander of the army of the Lord, uh, just his appearance, teaching Joshua? Joshua, you're not alone. This is a spiritual battle. It's not just about who's better at fighting. This is a spiritual battle. Remember, God allowed the Israelites to stay under slavery because the people that were in the promised land didn't deserve death. They didn't deserve to be kicked out of their homes. And then when they got so evil, finally God says, now's the time and I want you to wipe them out. Why? Because this is a spiritual warfare. And you look at the, 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 the religious systems in Jericho, the religious systems in, in the promised land, they were horrible. They were very dirty, they were very sexual. In fact, a uh, um, a priestess and a prostitute were; th- those were synonyms in their religious system. And of course, there are a lot of unwanted babies, and they would kill those unwanted babies. So this is spiritual warfare, and God wants His light to come into this place and save even the darkest of places. Amen. And we see that uh, taking place. So, there's a lot more going on behind the scenes than we realize. Second thing we need to keep in mind. Number two, our enemies are not really ours. Our enemies are not really ours. Look at verse 13b. We're back in Joshua chapter 5. Look at Joshua chapter 5, starting in the second half of verse 13. And Joshua went to him and said to him, Are you for us or for our adversaries? See the question? He's saying there are two sides. There's us... Or adversaries, And it makes sense. I, can, I don't blame uh, Joshua for that question because that's the first thing I would want to know if someone has a sword drawn and they're surprising me with it. Right? Are you with me or against me? Right? And he's saying, are you for us or are you for our enemies? As if there are only two options. The, the commander of the army of the Lord actually corrects him a little bit here because his answer isn't, oh yeah, I'm for you. And his answer isn't obviously, though, I'm for your enemies. What is his answer? His answer is, you look at uh, verse 14. So he said, No. Stop there for a second. This wasn't the yes or no question, really. Right? So usually, when, when he, uh, yeah, no is the answer to a yes or no question, but his answer is, Are you for, for this side or for that side? And he says, No. What is he saying? There's a third option here. He says, No, verse 14, but as commander of the army of the Lord. I have now come. Why do you think the commander of the army of the Lord would make this distinction? Because was, jo- was Joshua fighting for the Lord? Yeah. So wouldn't it have been easier just to say, yeah, I'm, I'm on your side? Because they are on the same side. But the fallacy that, that shows up here would be if he says he's on Joshua's side, it makes it look like it's Joshua versus the enemies. He said, "No, no, Joshua, you need to change your perspective with the way you see this thing. You see, it's uh, not—it's not uh, us against them, right? Where you know you look at your enemies and it's—and they just seem overpowering, like the lone pawn in a game of chess, right? It's not us against them; it's them against God, and you're on God's side, and that makes all the difference." One thing I want us to realize is that if we're, if we're going to be on fire, if we're going to keep the commitments, that, even just the commitments that were made last week, many of you came forward here, many of you made commitments right from your church. If we're going to keep those commitments, Satan's going to get upset, is he not? And he's going to fight us. But we have to keep in mind, our enemies aren't really ours. They're God's enemies. New Testament perspective of this, Matthew 10, verses 16-22 says, Behold... Jesus said this to his disciples: "I send you out as sheep in the midst of wolves. Thank you, Lord. (laughs) Wait a minute. We're sheep; they're wolves. That doesn't sound like a fair fight to me. But listen to what he says. Therefore, be wise as serpents and harmless as, as doves, But beware of men, for they will deliver you up to councils and scourge you in the synagogues. You will be brought before governors and kings for my sake as a testimony to them and to the Gentiles. I don't know about you, but I would be thinking, Lord, this is not a great pep talk." We're going to go through obstacles. We're going to go through scourges. We're going to go through all sorts of things. He goes on to say, But when they deliver you up, do not worry about how, uh, about how or what you should speak. For it will be given to you in the hour that you should speak. For it is not you who speak, but the Spirit of the Father who speaks in you. Goes on to say, Now brother, now brother will deliver up brother. Uh, to death, and the, and the father and his child, and children will rise up against parents and cause them to be put to death, and you will be hated by all. Why? For my name's sake. Not because of who we are. They're not really our enemies. They're whose enemies? They're God's enemies. But he who endures to the end will be saved. And so God has salvation set aside for us. It is there. But we're going to have to endure some things. Because the world is an enemy of God. Not really the enemy of us. John 7 7 puts it this way. The world cannot hate you, but it hates me because I testify of it, that its works are evil. And you know what? If you love the Lord, if you testify, if you become a testifier, that that the works of the world are evil, the world will hate you. But we need to do it, right? Because if the world doesn't see that they're in sin... They will never look for the solution to sin. They will never accept a solution for sin. They will never accept the fact that Jesus died on the cross to pay for their sin. Because they don't want to admit that it's sin in the first place. Isn't that true? And that's the world we live in. Uh, And a few chapters later, uh, Jesus put it this way. He said, if the world hates you, you know that it hated me before it hated you. If you were of the world, the world would love its own. Yet because you are not of the world, but I chose you out of the world, therefore the world. Our enemies are not really ours. And and that's important for us to go in when we face the obstacles because if we're looking at it as us against them, what's going to happen? We'll be depressed. I mean, honestly, when you look in this world, uh, it seems like they are systematically trying to destroy the credibility of Christianity. Doesn't it? If you watch any science program on TV, does it support the scripture? Or does it try to tear the scripture down? If you, if you go in any history class, in any public school, does it support biblical history? Or does it try to tear it down? If you go to any science class, same thing. Why? It's because the world is against... And you know what? I don't want to tease you. Or The world is a strong force. And I would be depressed if it was us against them. But it's not. It's them against my God. I know who's going to win that. Amen. Amen. I hear a little bit better. Amen. Than that, hopefully by point three. All right, let's let's continue on. Let's let's see where 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 the where this is taking us. Let's uh, go to uh, uh, chapter five again, verse fifteen. Then the commander of the Lord's army said to Joshua, "Take your sandal off your foot, for the place where you stand is holy." And Joshua did so. That was the entirety of the message. Think about that for a moment God sends an angel Gives him a glimpse Of what's going on Behind the scenes And Joshua As any wise leader Would do Would say Alright What's the message for me And here's his message Take off your sandals Because the place Where you're standing Is holy That's it Take off your shoes. I don't know about you, but I would have been hoping for something like, here's the strategy, here's how you're going to defeat uh, the the people of Jericho, Here's here's the way to sneak in, or whatever it might be. That's what I would be looking for. How many of you are with me? Yeah, that's what I would have been looking for. Instead, the only advice that he gets is, take your shoes off. Because the place where you're standing is holy. And that's it. I think part of the reason that that's it is because Joshua knew where to take that. Because this isn't the first time that we've heard this in scripture. In fact, before uh, before he uh, became the successor to Moses, what was his job? He was the commander of the army of Moses. He worked for Moses. He knew Moses very well. This concept of taking off your shoe does not really begin in Joshua chapter 5. It begins all the way back in Exodus chapter 3. In fact, keep a finger in in chapter 5, but let's turn to Exodus chapter 3. I wish I had time to preach an entire sermon on this. But I will not. But look at chapter three, starting in verse uh, in verse one. Now Moses was tending the flock of Jethro his father-in-law, the priest of Midian, and he led the flock to the back of the desert and came to Horeb, the mountain of God. And the angel of the Lord appeared to him in a flame of fire from the midst of the bush. So he looked, and behold, the bush was burning with fire, but the bush was not consumed. Then Moses said, I will now turn aside and see what this great sight is, but why the bush does not burn up. So when the Lord saw that he turned aside and, and to look, God called to him from the midst of the bush and said, Moses, Moses. And he said, Here I am. Then he said, Do not draw near this place. Take your sandals off your feet, for the place where you stand is holy ground. Does that sound familiar, to too? Do you think that Moses may have relayed this story to Joshua once, twice, three, a hundred times in in his lifetime? Yes, because this was was the point. This was the story where God called him. And if you really think about it, um, it it makes sense. This little introduction to this conversation between God and, and Moses. And he tells him to take the sandals off of his feet for the place where you stand is holy. When you think of things that are holy or sacred, what are some of the things that come to mind? For me, I think of this ring because, well, for one, it has intrinsic value. It's made out of gold, but that's really a small part of the value. The real value comes in what it symbolizes, right? To me, it's sacred to me. You can give me a ring that costs more money, and it it will mean less to me. Why? Because this represents something very sacred, a vow that I made before God to my wife. So it's very sacred to me. When I think of things that are sacred, all sorts of things come to my mind. The last thing that comes to my mind is dirt. Think about that. Holy dirt. You know, I, I've been in um, all th- I've been, I've had my feet planted on at least 17 different countries, and guess what? Every single one of those countries have dirt in them. <laughs> all of them. Under your feet, somewhere, there's dirt. It's not, it's very common. It's just. It's common, but it was holy. It was uncommon. That's what holy means. It's separated. It's special. Why? Because God was there. God was using it. God is in the business of taking the common and turning it into something uncommon. And that was the lesson of Moses. And and so that was how he introduced it. But Moses had four questions. If you remember, I'm going to fly through them really quickly, just to just to remind you. Uh, but when when God told him he wanted him to release uh, the Israelites from the slavery of Egypt. Moses said in uh, Exodus 3.11, he said, Who am I that I should go to Pharaoh and that I should bring the children of Israel out of Egypt? What was he doing? He was focusing on the inadequacies of himself. Right? And God responded, I will certainly be with you. And this shall be a sign to you that I have sent you. When you have brought these people out of Egypt, you shall serve God on this mountain. God says, the answer is not in you, Moses. The answer is in the presence of God. Moses didn't, that wasn't enough for him, but in, in verse 13, he said, uh, uh, Indeed, when I come to the children of Israel and say to them, The God of your fathers has sent me to you, and they say to me, What is his name? What shall I say to them? His question, what, what, I don't have any authority. What authority should I come in? And God answers, he said, and God said to Moses, I am who I am. Yahweh has sent you. Again, the answer is, Don't look at yourself, Moses. Just look at me. Chapter 4, Moses has another question, another concern. Verse 1, he says, Then Moses answered and said, But suppose they will not believe me or listen to my voice. Suppose they say the Lord has not appeared to you. What's he doing? He's focusing again on his own obstacles. And God answers, verse 2, The Lord said to him, What is that in your hand? And he said, A rod. And he said, Cast it on the ground. So he cast it on the ground and it became a serpent. And Moses fled from it. And you know the rest. God gave him signs. His answer is, Moses, it's not about you. It's about the abilities that I'm going to give you. Later on in the same chapter, verse ten, Moses said to the Lord, "O oh my Lord, I am not eloquent, neither before nor since you have spoken to your servant. But I am slow of speech and slow of tongue." He said Lord again, he's focusing on himself and saying, "I can't do it." And God once again answers him and says, "Who made your mouth? Who makes man mute or deaf or seeing or blind? Have not I, the Lord?" Therefore, go, and I will be with your mouth and teach you what to say. And time and time again, the story, uh, the, or the, the lesson of the holy ground is very simple. Um, when we focus on the inadequacies of ourself, what's the result? It's intimidation. When we start focusing on on ourselves, we realize we can't do this. We cannot make these obstacles. We cannot accomplish these obstacles. But God in each case says, don't focus on that, focus on the omnipotence of God. Omnipotence, long word, but omni just means all potence means powerful. God is all powerful. And when we when we look at the inadequacies of ourself, we are intimidated. But when we take our focus off of ourself and put our focus on God, what happens? What's the result? We're encouraged. Think about what that word actually means, encourage. It means it gives us courage. We become encouraged because we're not focusing on ourselves, but on God. That brings us to, to lesson number three. God uses the common to do the uncommon. God uses the common to do the uncommon. And if you think you can't do it, you're in the right place. Because you can't. But God can do it through you. Just, just think what he did through the. That, just think what he did through his disciples, and, and look at, at uh, um, Acts. And you know, I'm going to just read something from Acts chapter four real fast. Let me turn there. Acts chapter four, verse thirteen. Try to take me a little longer there because this is a newer Bible for me. My, my old Bible, I can just flip right to things without even thinking sometimes. But Acts chapter four, verse thirteen. We read, Now when they saw the boldness of Peter and John and perceived that they were uneducated and untrained men, they marveled and they realized that they had been with Jesus. Think about that. It was the very weakness of these men that caused the people to see past them and see Jesus. I don't know about you, but that's encouraging to me because I'm a common person. Any other common people in here? And God loves to use you. Because when he does, people turn their heads and say, wow. And they see Jesus. They see through us. And they see Jesus. What about you? Are you fighting spiritual battles unprepared? Maybe in your own flesh? Do you only see the world that you see with your physical eyes? And you try and you prepare for those battles? Because if you do, even if you win a victory here or there, eventually you're going to run out. You're going to run out of energy, and uh, it won't work. Number two, what obstacles have been intimidating you or keeping you from doing what God is asking of you? And if you're fighting spiritual battles unprepared, remember that there's, there's more going on behind the scenes than you realize, but if, if you're worried about any of the obstacles that are facing you, then you need to remember that our enemies are not really ours to begin with. They're God's what obstacles have been intimidating you maybe it's fear of being rejected if you witness the people maybe you'll be fear of rejection who knows what it might be maybe it's not so much a fear of your enemies but maybe it's a fear of yourself that you're not able what inadequacies are keeping you from participating in the battle like moses he had every excuse in the book but every time he gave an excuse god gave an answer Remember that God uses the common to do the uncommon. What inadequacies might you have? Here's some practical steps, and we'll close with these uh, uh, in just a moment. But Number one, make prayer your focus. Why do I say that? Because when, when we don't pray, it's because we're focusing on just the physical, external world that we see. When we pray, we make the spiritual battles spiritual. Amen? Amen? And so uh, here, here I'm just giving you some practical steps. You know, every Sunday mornings at 9, actually at 9.15, um, we have a group of men that meet over here and we pray. There's a group of women that, meets, uh, that meet in the same hallway here. They, they get together and they pray. We have Wednesday nights at 7 o'clock, we pray. We take requests from everybody in the, in, the, in the entire congregation and we pray for those things. Thursday mornings at 8.30, there's another group that prays right here. If you, if you, if you, if you could make it then. Or maybe you could start a prayer journal where you're actually keeping track of your prayer requests and pray for those things. And that's exciting because you can see how God um, answers those things. Or, or maybe praying in your connection groups and just really making a, a focus. I, I don't know. I'm just giving you some ideas. But make prayer focus. There are probably some in here that don't uh, uh, participate in, they participate in zero of these things. Take a challenge and add one of these to your list. Take one, choose one. Or choose something different, but make it a challenge. Challenge yourself to make prayer a priority. Why? Because we're fighting spiritual warfare, not physical warfare. Maybe you're involved in one of those. Take on a second one. Get involved in two of them. Find a time. Or start in a prayer group somewhere, uh, a different time of the week, when different people come. Whatever it is, take the challenge. Go for it. Number two, compare your enemies to God. When you think of the enemies, anything that's keeping you, the obstacles, just compare it to God instead of comparing it to yourself. And then lastly, surrender your insecurities to God because He's in the business of doing the uncommon with the common. Converting from, from player to spectator, right? Get involved one way or another. Find your role and get involved. I'm going to close with just a short story. This is called The, the Story of Bob. <coughs> It comes from a book called If You Want to Walk on Water, You Have to Get Out of the Boat. Kind of cool title, right? So listen to what he, said, what he wrote. He says, One of my favorite adventures in prayer involves Doug Coe, who has a ministry in Washington, D.C. that mostly involves people of politics and statecraft. Doug became acquainted with Bob, an insurance salesman who was completely unconnected with anything in government circles. Bob became a Christian and began to meet with Doug to learn about his new faith. One day, Bob came in all excited about a statement in the Bible where Jesus says, Ask whatever you will in my name, and you shall receive it. Is that really true, Bob demanded? And Doug explained, well, it's not a blank check. You have to take it into the context of the teachings of the whole scripture on prayer. But yes, it really is true. Jesus really does answer prayer. Great, Bob said. Then I've got to start praying for something. I think I'll pray for Africa. Well, that's kind of a broad target. Why don't you narrow it down to one country, Doug advised All right, I'll pray for Kenya. Do you know anyone from Kenya, Doug asked? No. Ever been to Kenya? No. Bob just wanted to pray for Kenya. So Doug made an unusual arrangement. He challenged Bob to pray every day for six months for Kenya. If Bob would do that and nothing extraordinary happened, Doug would pay him $500. But if something remarkable did happen, Bob would pay Doug $500. And if Doug did not pray every day, the whole deal was off. By the way, this is not a prayer program that I'm recommending for the church. (laughs) It was a pretty unusual program, but Doug is a creative guy. Bob began to pray. And for a long while, nothing happened. Then one night, he was at a dinner in Washington, and the people around the table explained what they did for a living. One woman said she helped run an orphanage in Kenya, the largest of its kind. Bob saw $500, suddenly sprout wings, and began to fly away. But he could not keep quiet. Bob roared to life. He had not said much up to this point, and now he pounded her relentlessly with question after question. "'You're obviously interested in my country,' the woman said to Bob, overwhelmed by his sudden barrage of questions. "'You've been to Kenya before?' "'No.' "'You know someone in Kenya?' "'No.' "'Then how do you happen to be so curious?' Well, someone is kind of paying me $500 to pray, he explained. She asked Bob if he would like to come and visit Kenya and tour the orphanage. Bob was so eager to do so, he would have left that very night if he could. When Bob arrived in Kenya, he was appalled by the poverty and the lack of basic health care. Upon returning to Washington, he couldn't get this place out of his mind. He began to write to large pharmaceutical companies, describing to them the vast need that he had seen, He reminded them that every year they would throw away large amounts of medical supplies that went unsold. Why not send them to this place in Kenya, he asked. And some of them did. This orphanage received more than a million dollars worth of medical supplies. The woman called Bob up and said, Bob, this is amazing. We've had the most phenomenal gifts because of the letters you wrote. We would like to fly you back over and have a big party. Will you come? So Bob flew back to Kenya While he was there, the president of the country came to the celebration because it was the largest orphanage in the country and he offered to take Bob on a tour of Nairobi, the capital city. In the course of the tour, they saw a prison and Bob asked about a group of prisoners there. They're political prisoners, he was told. That's a bad idea, Bob said brightly. You should let them out. Bob finished the tour and flew back home. Sometime later, Bob received a phone call from the State Department of the United States government. Is this Bob? Yes. Were you recently in Kenya? Yes. Did you make any statements to the president about political prisoners? Yes. What did you say? I told him you should let him out. (laughs) The State Department official explained that, that the department had been working for years to get the release of those prisoners to no avail Normal diplomatic channels and political maneuverings had led to a dead end. But now the prisoners had been released, and the State Department was told it was largely because of Bob. (laughs) So the government was calling to say thanks. Several months later, the president of Kenya made a phone call to Bob. He was going to rearrange his government and select a new cabinet. Would Bob be willing to fly over and pray for him for three days while he worked on this very important task? So Bob, who was not politically connected at all, boarded a plane once more and flew back to Kenya, where he prayed and asked God to give wisdom for the leader of a nation as he selected his new government. And all this happened because one man was willing to get out of the boat. I don't know about you, but that touches my heart because here's a common person who recognized that there's way more going on behind the scenes than he realizes. And he turned that that physical battle into a spiritual battle. By taking it to the Lord in prayer. And then what happens? God takes the common and does something uncommon with it. But I'd like to ask you today are you willing to be a common person and let God do something uncommon with you? And if you're willing, then you have to ignore the enemies of God, realize that they're gods, ignore your own inadequacies. Focus on the omnipotence of our God. In just a moment, I'm going to ask us to pray. So go ahead and bow your heads, close your eyes. In fact, let's stand together, bow our heads, and close our eyes. And today we've talked a lot about faith. It's possible that some here have never started that faith, for faith has never even been that point that we talked about. If that's you today, and you're not sure that you're on your way to heaven, then come directly to me when we sing. Come to me, and I will, I will send you to someone who can show you from God's word how you can know for sure that you're saved, that you're going to spend eternity with in heaven? For those of you who know you're saved, you know that Jesus Christ died on the cross to pay for your sins. You've accepted that. I want you to accept the challenge to make the spiritual battles spiritual. And if you're willing to, to make any of those commitments that we talked about today, whether it's prayer. Or comparing your enemies to God, or surrendering your insecurities to God, saying, Lord, I will be a player, not a spectator. I'm going to give you an opportunity to just come. You don't have to talk to me, it's just between you and God. To come forward and just kneel before the Lord. No one's watching, no one's paying attention to who you are. But just commit to the Lord and say, Lord, I'm committing to be common for you so that you can do something uncommon through me. And pray this. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, I thank you for your Holy Spirit, the way he works in our hearts. I thank you for the way you worked in Moses. I thank you for the way you worked in Joshua. And I thank you for the way you worked in Bob. It reminds me, Lord, that you can work in me. Lord, I pray that you would do the same thing in the hearts of people that are here today. As we commit to this, you would take common people and do uncommon holy things. I pray this in Christ's name. Amen.